The battle of wizards and warriors continues with iron swords. The evil wizard Malkil will take the shape of the earth, wind, water, and fire. Farewell! The fate of the world is in your hands! You're listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willett. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience, I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Hi everybody, how you doing? Welcome back to another episode. Uh, so, okay, my guest this week is Mick Rawls, and Mick is a super awesome piercer from Cold Steel out in San Francisco, and we recorded our interview during Camp APP week, and I, one of these days, you know, by the time I get to maybe episode 500, I'll figure out how to have great sounding audio, but uh, I had my little Zoom H4, and I didn't have some sort of like, a you know, one of those fuzzball wind uh, protector things that you put on the end of it, so there's definitely a lot of points where you hear a lot of wind in the background, so I'll definitely apologize for that. I've got about an hour-long interview with Mick, and I'd say maybe five minutes of that audio has a lot of wind in the background, you know, kind of mixed throughout the uh, the interview, so I'll apologize for that, but it's a really good interview, so um, it's not like I'm going to scrap it just because there's a little bit of wind in the background, but uh, in the future, I'll try to record uh, indoors or maybe get one of those little windscreen protectors, but it's an awesome conversation with Mick. He has such a, a great perspective from a really, really long career back to the basically the beginning of the APP, so he tells a lot of stories about uh, training with the gauntlet, doing their seminars, working for their studios, you know, what it was like learning from uh, that that first generation, you know, that uh, gauntlet master piercer kind of generation. Uh, talks a lot about the growth and the perspective and the development, and uh, it, it was great to hear it from a different perspective uh, than, than someone like myself, because I'm very much out of that um, post-goth kid kind of BME generation of, of body piercers. So it's really cool to hear about like that gauntlet generation because that was the generation that I really looked up to when I was coming into the industry. So it's great to kind of hear some uh, behind the curtain stories from, uh, from, from that generation. A big part of what I want to talk about on the intro this week are the upcoming APP elections. So last week uh, I officially accepted my nomination and now it's kind of time to, to get to work for getting elected, you know, so I want to get some of my positions out there. Um, if anybody has any questions and wants me to cover anything, uh, feel free to email me ryanpba at gmail.com. I put out a message on the Piercing Wizard podcast Facebook page to get some questions from people and uh, I got a few and I'm going to answer them on the show. Um, one of the questions that I got was, uh, you know, what's the most challenging aspect of the position? So for, for me right now, I am the outreach liaison and that's a little bit nebulous. You know, it's basically, you know, anything that where you talk to someone out, outside of body piercers, you know, so it can be, uh, healthcare workers, it can be the general public, you know, outreach covers a lot of different things like social media. Um, but really the, the most challenging part about that position isn't really the message because, you know, everybody kind of knows the message, you know, health, safety, education, and body piercing, you know, upping the minimum standards, things like that. But really the, the tough part about it is learning how the APP itself works. Uh, so there's a whole system of volunteers and committees and you know the board of directors and the votes and uh, written proposals and how conference works with the administrator and there's the systems with the treasurer and the secretary and all that stuff you know and it was really really challenging to learn how to actually be a good worker for the APP at first I'd say that was my most challenging thing I think a lot of people get elected and think like okay 
uh, I have this uh, this platform. I have uh, all these different things. This agenda that I want. I want to get done. And then when you get into that that room of other people, where you realize that they also have their agenda, they also have their perspectives, their opinions, um, and you are just part of that. You know, you're not being elected to be the voice of the APP. You're elected to be one of seven voices of the APP. And a lot of that is compromise. A lot of that is. Uh, listening rather than speaking. And, uh, you know, I became a better critical thinker by being on the board of directors, you know, listening to people like Steve Joyner and Kendra Jane and Jeff Saunders uh, talk and express their opinions and, and win me over to their perspective, you know. So um, I really learned how to be more of a team player. Uh, that, was, that was definitely challenging for me at, at first. But, you know, it, it's, a, it's a challenge that I, I really enjoyed being a part of. And, uh, you know, I think I'm a lot better for it. Um, another question from the same person is, you know, what changes would you want to see if you were elected to a second term? And, you know, I don't think it's any surprise that the APP has already started trying to move in a certain direction um, and, and really just being more evenly representative. Um, you know, I think for a long time you saw very similar faces uh, at the front of those classrooms and um, in the different media that we would put out and, you know, on the board of directors too, you know, you, and, uh, you know, I think it's important to be more representative. You know, I see a lot of people who are nominated who are, you know, from wider perspectives of life. And I think that's amazing. And I think it's going to be the, the will of membership as to who actually gets elected. Um, I would certainly hope that my body of work kind of speaks for me. Um, you know, the class I've taught and the, the decisions I've made on the board and the, the work that I've tried to help move forward. So, um, and it's difficult to talk about all the work that goes on behind the scenes, you know, with policies and discussions. And, you know, there, there are people on the board who spend months of their life um, listening and really working out policies. And it's, it's difficult when you can't say, um, you know, this person led the charge on this, that this person led the charge on that. Um, you know, and I think sometimes the, the people on the board are kind of kind of a punching bag. You know, that's what we sign up for, you know, because we're the visible face of the APP. And if people don't like something that the APP is doing, um, you know, whose fault is it going to be other than those those visible faces? But I, I really just want to say that uh, I love the work that uh, I've been able to be a part of on the APP board of directors. And I would certainly like to stick around for another three years. Uh, another question that I, I get, and you know, I don't want to make it just an APP issue, you know, because it's really just uh, anything related to the sphere of, of politics, and you know, running for a board of directors for any organization, you know, APP included, is going to have at least a little bit of political game to it. So, uh, you know, I, I got asked a question about the kind of popularity contest aspect of being on the board of directors, and that's a great way to really take a step back and try to be critical and, and think about who you're going to vote for. Um, you know, are you voting for someone who is trying to basically start an argument and bring it to the board of directors? Are you going to vote for someone who has um, an agenda or, or has a plan and is going to try to bring that to the board of directors? And, you know, you really have to kind of make that decision critically. You know, try not to think about, uh, is this just a name I recognize or is this just a person I, I met at conference or does, does this person you know, post something inflammatory in a, a Facebook uh, forum and, and I really want to see how that argument can develop, you know, with, with six other people involved. Um, you know, stop and think about would they be a benefit to the APP? Would they be a benefit to the industry? Would they be a benefit to the board of directors? And there definitely is 
a popularity contest angle to it for sure. You know, um, anytime where you have to say, you know, you need votes to get in a certain position, that means that people have to number one, know your name and, and connect it with some sort of positivity and, and you have to give them a reason to vote for you, you know. Uh, the first time I ran for the board, I had a really, really simple agenda. You know, I wanted to remove soap from the aftercare brochure. You know, I wanted to do a couple other little things and I wanted to make a stretching brochure. You know, little stuff like that. You know, I didn't want to shoot for the moon. You know, I think some people have positions like, um, you know, st should sterile gloves be minimum standard? Should there be tiered membership? Should should we, you know, break everything down for how conference is done and start from scratch and, you know, move conference even if it's going to cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to, to hold it somewhere else, you know? Um, you know, try to think about what the person wants to do. You know, some of the people running for the board are amazing people. They're the people who have been running the APP through committees, you know, with their work for, for a long time, for months, if not years, you know? Um, and then other people want to just be on the board to be seen to be on the board. You know, every, every time that you open up a political contest, you have to kind of question people's uh, motivations to it, you know? And I, I think if you look back at all the different boards of directors, board of directors, boards of directors, um, over the last, you know, 10 or so years with the APP, there's been a really diverse group there. You know, you've had the super hard workers that have been in there. You've had the people who are super visible, but flame out, you know, they don't finish a, a term, you know, they end up leaving or they end up kind of staying on the board, but just being checked out. You know, they're not really answering those 20 emails a day and keeping up on conversations. They're not really engaging in those board meetings where they're making decisions, they're making suggestions, they're trying to improve things. They're just kind of, um, you know, using the, that visibility that you get on the board of directors for maybe personal gain or, or just for ego boost or something like that. So um, the, the crop of people that are nominated uh, this year, you know, it's it's a really, really strong crop, you know, to the point where I think, uh, you know, if there are three spots open, am, am I going to have a solid shot at one of those three spots, you know, because there's there's such a strong pool of talent out there uh, this year and, and everybody is really engaged and they're hard workers and they really just want to do work. So, you know, I think this year... Um, you have to worry a little bit less about people's motivations, but still, you know, pay attention to what they're saying, you know, ask them questions. If you have any questions for me or if you have any questions for anyone else, you know, now's the time to ask. You don't want to uh, think six months from now or a year from now, like, I wonder if this person would have been better on the board and if I voted for this person for the wrong reasons or whatever. But, um, you know, voting for anything uh, carries a certain level of politics to it, you know, and you really just have to think about someone's motivation. You know, are they there to help? Are they there to be seen? You know, why why do they want to be there in the first place? So uh, those are a couple different things that are on my mind as far as the, the APP Board of Directors vote goes. Um, but, you know, again, uh, if you if you have any questions for me, just go ahead and ask. You know, if, if you have a question about, you know, things I've done in the past or things I might want to do in the future or if you have suggestions, you know, like I'm one of those people who, you know, reads those proposals and, and really stops and thinks, you know, is there value to this for the rest of the industry? You know, is this class going to benefit people? People? Is this policy change going to, to benefit people, you know, and uh, I really enjoy being a part of that process. So enough of me rambling. Uh, just a quick uh, little plug. I've still got my class open for registration in the Portland, Oregon area. That's going to be the first week of December. You can find all that information online at precisionbodyarts.com seminars. 
uh, it's feeling out pretty good, this one. I think this is going to be a really good class. I'm looking forward to it. But for now, let's get into that conversation with Mick Rawls. You know, he's got a really awesome perspective. Uh, again, I apologize about the wind. And if you hear some random shouting in the background, keep in mind that that is a, a group of body piercers playing kickball in a field, and they all have massive smiles on their faces. So just hearing that stuff in the background really makes me happy. So uh, let's talk to Mick Rawls, and I'll be back after that. Cool. Uh, my name is uh, Mick Rawls. Uh, I'm currently uh, manager and piercer at Cold Steel America in San Francisco. Um, my beginnings were uh, at Gauntlet in the mid-90s. Uh, and so, yeah, so kind of talking about stories and that mystery and what piercing was like, you know, back in those days. Well, you have kind of a unique bridge because you kind of came in right at that time where the gauntlet was strong, but it wasn't going to last much longer. Yeah. Um, the APP was really just a formative thing, you know, and you got to see a lot of the early growing pains and everything like that, you know, and where you've worked in San Francisco was so connected to the, the growth explosion really of, of body piercing as a culture, you know, and as an industry. Um, and you know, you work in, in cold steel and you have all these experiences with all these amazing piercers over the years. So I just wanted to try to capture some of that. So what are some of the early things that just kind of jump out at you? Like, what was it that drew you into body piercing? Sure. Um, body piercing, uh, I'm from a little small town in Louisiana called Plaquemine. Uh, the next biggest city would be Baton Rouge and then New Orleans about an hour and a half away. Uh, and I got into it when I was in college. Um, kind of seeing these images that were starting to come out um, kind of in the industrial scene and uh, heavy metal and stuff like that. I think my first piercing that I, that I saw that I really wanted uh, was uh, Axel Rose had gotten his nipple pierced, you know, and so it was in Rolling Stone. It's like, oh, what is that, you know? And yeah. uh, before that, uh, growing up, my mother was sober and I went to a lot of NA meetings and stuff, and so there was a lot of bikers and stuff like that. And so tattooing was very, uh, very prevalent, like where I was around, and I always wanted to tattoo. And so like body modification and like doing that stuff was always kind of part of where I was, and I just didn't know uh, where it was going to play a part in my life. Uh, I was in nursing school when I really started getting into piercing, so I'd already kind of had like this medical thing that I was starting to get into, and uh, working with people already was. Uh, I liked being around people, so I already had that going for me. Uh, and I met this girl named Emily, who just passed this last year. Uh, she had a, a shop called Mystic Gymcraft, and so like uh, oils and incense and stuff like that. And uh, going in and just, just chit-chatting with her, and uh, she had an interest in piercing as well. And I was like, oh, well, let's do this together. Yeah. Uh, and so in the beginning, we were searching out this guy named Todd who was doing piercing in Baton Rouge mm -hmm. uh, out of its apartment uh, using bicycle spokes. Wow. And so he would thread the bicycle spoke, that would be cut it and make it into rings or barbells and stuff. It was kind of ingenious, to be honest with you. Yeah, uh, yeah use what and you have available. Sure, and he had a lot of success with it. Yeah. And at that time, there really wasn't a whole lot of body jewelry to be had. Yeah. There might have been a couple of small companies like it, Silver it, Like You really stuff. had to know someone to be able to get body jewelry at the time. Absolutely. Absolutely, and of course, you know, the price and all that stuff mm -hmm. was sometimes prohibitive, especially for college kids. Yeah. Uh, and so we actually tried to search him out to no avail, and I said, okay, he was just kind of hard to get a hold of. Uh, and then uh, Lane had opened up her shop in New Orleans right then, and we are like, oh, okay, well, we know this name. You know, we've seen the magazines and stuff like that. So we got some of our first piercings together 
Edeline shop. Cool. Um, I had been pierced previously by this guy named Brian Tabello, who was Elaine's first apprentice. Uh, he worked at the shop called um, Electric Expressions. And I had to get my first piercing for him. And then when he moved to Elaine, just like, oh, kind of followed that trail. Yep. Uh, and then kind of seeing uh, what he did and like the experiences that I was having, uh, Emily wound up moving her shop uh, to a bigger space. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, I'd like to incorporate piercing. Uh, would you be interested in doing that? And I'm like, oh, well, I never really thought about it, but had a strong interest in it. And uh, I'd seen what this guy Ty was doing. I was like, well, I could at least have better jewelry than this guy, mm -hmm. even if I didn't know exactly what we were doing. Yeah. Uh, and so it kind of started with that. And like for nine months, I spent just kind of experimenting and finding out what worked and what didn't work. Um, at the end of uh, the shop uh, there, uh, or right before that, uh, found a gauntlet was giving seminars mm -hmm. on piercing and I was like oh well this will really help me you know kind of uh, expand on what I already know and kind of move my career forward because at the time it was just kind of like uh, a weekend thing I'd work yeah. a couple of days a weekend then go to school hobby that would maybe hobby. give you a little money sure you know spending yeah. money here and there and I was still enjoying it and because of Emily's connection to kind of underground scene in Baton Rouge we had a lot of clientele that were like oh yeah we totally want to try this piercing thing and cool. uh, I had a lot of people that were like uh, willing and knew that I was learning and like oh you can learn or me and they would just buy jewelry or whatever like that uh, and so uh, I was like, oh, okay, I'll take the seminar. Um, and that wound up being the big game changer for me. Yeah. Because uh, little did I know that part of what Gauntlet was doing with their seminars is they were looking to expand. And this is a point when they were kind of like, uh, they were moving to Seattle. Mm -hmm. uh, they just opened a shop in Paris. Uh, and so they were looking to, to make it a lot bigger. Right. And so, so they were kind of talent scouting with their seminars. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it was like a five day audition mm -hmm. as it would be to kind of see uh, how that would work. Uh, and so uh, right before I went to the seminar, I lost my job. Okay. The shop closed. And so I didn't have a, I didn't have a job to come back to. Mm -hmm. uh, I also had spent the money that I was going to spend on school on the seminar expecting to get that back. Yeah. Uh, so when I went, I was like, all right, it was kind of a Hail Mary as it would be. Uh, and so going to the seminar, part of what I wanted was uh, to get a job. Yeah. Working for Gauntlet for sure, you know. Uh, and so when I got there, I was like kind of scouted out who I should be talking to. Uh, and at that time, Erwin Kane was the general manager hmm. of Gauntlet. And I was like, oh, he looks important. <laughs> uh, so I kind of made my presence known. And yep. I was like, hey, you guys looking for anybody? And they're like actually we are uh and so uh it was a great class it was the the way they had it set up was really awesome uh my teachers were sky mikhaila gray uh, and sharon uh from la cool. uh, so it was really awesome and like uh, especially with sky i learned some of our tuned into some of my first energy work mm -hmm. and already feeling that type of stuff both working at a shop that kind of worked with tarot cards and, and people's energies and right. stuff. Already open to it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then through piercing and stuff like that, of course, we're around it all the time, even if we don't recognize it. And so yeah. with uh, working with Sky, it was really great to put a name to that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're like, okay, you know, we'll hire you. Of course, I want to move to San Francisco because that was where they put the seminar at. And the first time I flew into San Francisco, it's like, 
something is different about this town. Right, just the energy, the vibe. Absolutely, and it had such amazing shops uh, going because it had the gauntlet, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, had Nomad was there, uh, body manipulations, um, and stuff. Right, and were you, am I correct in saying that you were at the first APP meeting? Uh, At the first... So there was a couple first. Yeah. Uh, this was the first meeting where it was like uh, a couple of guys from Body M, Gauntlet, uh, Christian, and uh, Blake from Nomad. Mm-hmm. So that was that first meeting. And that was one of the first get togethers, official get togethers, to talk about what the APP would be. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, years later, would be the first, like, there was a meeting on a Sunday in Vegas mm-hmm. uh, where we all kind of got together. It was like in between 50 and 80 of us. It was a lot of people. It was yeah. people from all over the country, mm-hmm. uh, all the big shops and stuff. And we all sat down in a big room and kind of talked about what they wanted the APP to be and what it would kind of sort of look like uh, in those big stages. How wide was the perspective? Because, I mean, even today, even when you have an, an APP that's 20 plus years in, forming a mission statement and a message and, you know, education and all that stuff, it's still very divisive as to what the APP should be for all people and things so what was it like at the beginning was it how passionate were those opinions on the variances of what the app should be sure i think uh just some of the 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 biggest things was just getting some of these people in the same room yeah and so there was a lot of people who were like okay i'm willing to come in and drop whatever baggage whatever Mm -hmm. kind of resentments that i have against the shop um one of the ones i really remember was alan faulkner and stacy uh who owned the name of the shop would you put that in but something in bones okay. and they had a shop and they also had a very big uh feud going mm-hmm. and so them being there they were like okay let's set this aside for what we're shooting for and right. it was really trying to pull everybody together uh, to pull that knowledge and to um have each other's resources mm-hmm. and i think that in the beginning that really was the, the first hurdle was just let's get everybody together right. so there was a lot of people from the same town that were coming in and say okay now we're with this you know like okay we want to spread this message and we want to you know raise jewelry standards and so those were some of the some of the basic issues that were being brought up um just to kind of get everything rolling yeah yeah trying to get everybody on the same page must have been tough absolutely uh mikhaila was great because she had already worked on the gauntlet manual and so a lot of those same principles that they were working with Mm -hmm. kind of already had them written down they already yeah. had them in paper uh and so i feel like she did some of the first like big leg work to kind of uh, catapult everything else and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. uh so but it was just great because nothing like that had ever happened it was yeah. such a historical event where you had all these shops from all over the country gus came from hawaii and people from new york and seattle and um that was just amazing to have that together and of course it must have been like, intense uh, it was a drunken mess. <laughs> it was glorious, dude. <laughs> Not much has changed as right, far as that right. goes. Yeah, a few more classes, but that's about it. But I feel like it was such like I feel like there was such a celebration because there were so many of us that so desperately wanted uh, to have that community right. and to reach out and to like who knew that like a bell mm-hmm. send people across the country now across the world and go yeah. oh I know Steve yeah totally go to that guy you know and like know what kind of joy they have mm-hmm. and have some basic concepts I mean I even know oh no he won't do that with four steps it'll be freehand but that's okay you know and like to even be able to go into that I think is just that's incredible yeah. you know and to see it grow throughout the years has been a really uh, it's 
been awesome. So once you got established in San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, what was it like for you, you know, knowing that you wanted to be part of this community, knowing that you wanted to be part of this industry, and then you get kind of established somewhere, and then you start to really kind of build yourself as a professional. Like, what was that dynamic at the time? Because I'd imagine information was just flying everywhere. Uh, yeah, I mean, everything was in magazines, mm-hmm. especially when I started. I mean, everything that I did, the first things I did were straight out of PFIQ, and yeah. like following everything step by step and making sure everything looked it should and replicate what they were doing and also like trying to move forward even at that time uh, I remember when I took this seminar we were in class and we were talking about stuff and they're like oh okay so we're gonna cold soak rubber bands I'm like oh why don't you just autoclave them Mm. and at that time Gauntlet didn't know you could sterilize rubber bands rubbers yeah yeah and so already something has shifted forward Mm -hmm. before even when I first started you know and so it was great to kind of see all that stuff go uh, and I totally forgot what your question was, but oh, well, just basically, yeah. just—it's not so much a question. It's just kind of uh, trying to pull out of you, like, what it was just like to be a, a piercer at that point. You know, before piercing had really blown up online, where it was people—you know—they had a connection to piercing personally, and then they started to kind of connect to all these other people that had that same internal connection, and then growing something from that all together. Sure. You know, it's just. Uh, it's cool to hear to hear and think about it. Yeah, no, it was like it, it was it definitely more like a rock star status, mm. like uh, being you know comped in the clubs and stuff like that, and people knew who you were. Yeah, uh, being at the Gauntlet, we did we dealt with a lot of famous people, and so that was like a regular deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I worked in LA, I had any given day we could have one of the Cosby kids come in, or uh, Rob Halford, or Lenny Kravitz, or a number of like all these guys, and so it was like it was such like an elevated thing and it was uh uh yeah like paul says it's a rock star thing it just yeah. felt so so incredible uh and then me coming from such a small town and i went straight from louisiana to new york mm-hmm. uh, after training in san francisco with paul and that was just insanity because i went from doing seven piercings in a weekend yeah. to doing 20 a day right <laughs> and like it was such it was so mind-blowing to like get used to that but at the uh, same time you must have been able to really hone techniques and really uh, dial yourself in as a yeah, piercer. Yeah, that's all we did. Yeah. Uh, when I first got uh, my apprenticeship with Paul, um, part of what got him his senior or his master piercer was what they were going to start doing. They took the apprenticeship and they were condensing it down for people who had already been piercing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I got hired, I got hired with this uh, guy named John Cobb and we'd both been piercing. And so it's like, okay, these guys have already picked up needles. Uh, they have basic ideas of jewelry. They they both took the seminar, so they have a base, a very basic understanding of this stuff. Uh, so we can kind of move them through a little bit faster. And part yeah. of it was an accelerated training program that we did where five days a week we had a dedicated room where we just did apprentice piercings. And we weren't doing apprentice piercings. We were talking about piercings. We were working with boards. We were piercing each other. Um, and so really for like probably the first two and a half years that I started piercing, like everything every day revolved around piercing wow so you're just uh, like living it as a lifestyle absolutely yeah. and especially since uh, i'd been hired by the gauntlet and mm-hmm. at that time there wasn't a bigger shop to work for right. and more prestigious mm-hmm. uh and so there was also like i wanted to keep that image up and also be part of that you know and so like everything i could do uh to make myself a better piercing like set these standards for myself and uh when i was apprenticing i was very aggressive about it uh, i had signs 
lines made up at the end because uh, during the apprenticeship we do all the piercings and so at the end you know, I had apodravias, ampelangs, geishas, fourchettes, all that mm-hmm. stuff and I actually had a poster printed in the shop that I plastered all along the wall so people would come in and be like oh so you about an earlobe I'm like oh can I interest you in an apodravia <laughs> uh, which worked more than once really yeah absolutely we were like oh okay and then it would also bring in that I'm training mm-hmm. you can be a part of that experience and like uh all through my years i find that people love being a part of that they mm-hmm. love being a part of that experience oh i can help you with my piercing yeah absolutely yeah. and like almost across the board it makes it just a magical experience because they're like oh i'm totally helping you and then well, you're i hear about, about that it. all the time when i talk to when i end up talking to um, a client who's had you know intimate experiences with with shops and piercers and things like that, they they love to say, "Oh, I was their first PA. I, I, I was their first nipple piercing. All that." Like they love being connected to someone that way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, part of piercing is connecting mm-hmm. with people, and that just adds another facet to that gym and just makes it more magical experience. Yeah. When I was first getting pierced with Brian, when he was working with Elaine, I would literally do that. I'd walk into the shop and be like. What do you have next? You know, and like, oh, I need geishas and this. I'm like, all right, well, let's do all those. Cool. <laughs> you know, and of course, me learning piercing, it's like part of what I was doing was trying to absorb uh, the interaction that was going on between uh, those two so I could kind of hear and say, mm-hmm. oh, I can pull that. And I would watch how they set up the tray and right. ask questions and stuff. Uh, and so it was kind of like everybody kind of benefited from it. So that was really great. So during that, that generation of body piercing, um, you know, you bring up the name John Cobb, who is really a major innovator, you know. So when it went from the piercings that were seen as a little bit more traditional in the gauntlet sense, um, when did it kind of start moving into experimentation? You know, something like like you have one of the first vertical labret piercings and things like that. Like, where did that kind of experimentation start to come in? Sure. Uh, it, it was the younger generation coming in because there was like... Uh, you had like uh, the gauntlet guys uh, you had the fakir kids uh, they had nomad would start was starting to make a name for itself because they were doing uh, more stuff uh, with less tools mm-hmm. and they were kind of like uh, and so you had like uh, these different all these different ideas uh, coming together and people were trying to pull from them and kind of rise above that and kind of make their own name for it mm-hmm. you know and with John he was looking at everything all these other people were doing and trying to condense it and make it into uh, uh, something that was his own Mm -hmm. Uh, and he saw like what the Nomad guys were doing with you know not working with tools as much he's like okay and uh, I feel like Steve Hayworth was just kind of starting his stuff Uh, and so he was kind of pulling from all those different disciplines to kind of make his own thing and kind of uh, push forward and and see okay what what else can we do with this right uh, and so that was really great like some of the first freehand stuff that I saw was actually from John uh, you know and some stuff that I always kept when I saw him do you know like eyebrows for me I was like oh that totally makes sense you yeah. know it's like oh okay yeah we can totally do that and uh, it was interesting to watch his influence over some of the gauntlet guys who had kind of uh, stayed within these realms mm-hmm. like oh this is a profession uh, I was taught to do this uh, this works and I'm just gonna keep up with it yeah. and, I, and really there's nothing wrong with that you know mm-hmm. if there's nothing wrong you don't have to fix it you right. know and there were just some people it's like oh well, let's fine-tune this a little bit more mm-hmm. and kind of see what we can do with it uh, I love when uh, Michael McKinney 
who got brought in at the end of Gauntlet to help teach the seminars uh, was the first to show me uh, prepacks mm -hmm. where you'd put all your stuff in a little pack and just kind of open it all together. That was mind blowing at the time. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't have to pull. Was it like you put charts. out 20 different packages and drawers and everything? Yeah. And it was yeah. like you pull stuff out of, out of the little, you know, drawers or whatever like that. And then you just put it in one little pack and just open it all together. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh my God, that's fucking amazing. And like when he showed me, I was just blown away, which I still use that system today. You yeah. know, it's like, yeah. okay that still works uh and so it was cool to watch kind of uh john kind of uh infiltrate the gauntlet a little bit and kind of move things forward uh of course his disputes with michaela gray and all that stuff yeah kind of battling but it was like a you know older school with the new school mm -hmm. and just not knowing i feel like even that still happens today yeah i know? mean you're always going to have that dynamic because you have you have the existing generation that inspires the people to, to get into it. You know, those are the people that you see online or when it was magazines or, or whatever, or you meet them somewhere and you think like, oh my God, I want to be somebody like that someday. Absolutely. And then that generation comes into the industry and then they start having this mentality of, um, you know, I want to, I want to take what I've seen, but then I want to put my own twist on it and I want to evolve it and change it. And I want to be the person that's going to inspire the next generation. You always have that drive and it's, it's, it's always there. And sometimes you see it in, you know, maybe a positive or a negative, but it's, it's always still there and it's definitely still in the industry today. Oh, awesome. I, yeah, I think that is always going to be the case when you have an apprenticeship uh, of you surpassing the person that's training you. Mm -hmm. And that should be the point. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, if, yeah, because you don't want to be stagnant. Exactly. And it's like almost every piercer that I've ever trained, it's been like, God damn it. Like, you're really good you yeah. know technique wise you know mm -hmm. and watching it happen and sometimes there's battles between oh well we don't have to do that why mm -hmm. you you know uh and that's just kind of just the way of life it's how it works you yeah. know so uh so it was neat to kind of be a part of that especially uh in the beginning of the app and how that influenced everything mm -hmm. so so when you ended up or or how did you end up transplanting from New York back to San Francisco? Um, so uh, at the time, uh, they were looking for new employees for New York. Mm -hmm. uh, was the thing they were going to replace. Um, uh, we can take this name out. Sure. <laughs> uh, Keith Alexander. Yeah. Uh, they, at the time, they were going to uh, fire him. Uh, and so they were looking for a replacement. And because Keith had been uh, such an amazing piercer, uh, clients loved him all that stuff. They really needed more than one person to replace him, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and they knew they were going to make some more shifts. Uh, and so what they did, they moved us to San Francisco first with the intent of moving us to New York. Okay. Uh, John was To already, kind of like train you up and prepare you for New York? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to kind of throw us in the fire. John was living in New York at the time. Mm -hmm. So that was our home base for him. And with me, uh, it actually took him about a month before they decided to hire me on because the manager at the time there, Mark, uh, who you got to interview, who was one of my favorite people of all time, uh, didn't know if he wanted to have uh, this kid from southern Louisiana mm -hmm. moving straight to Manhattan. Yeah. You know, they were afraid of just going to a little bit too much for culture me. shock maybe or? absolutely you yeah. know finding a place to live and yeah. all that stuff uh luckily enough with moving to new york uh there was uh, an apartment in the back of the new york store mm -hmm. that they would like guest piercers stay at and i lived there for a year yeah while i was there because of how hard it was to find a place to live yeah, i'm sure yeah uh and so yeah so we uh went from there to new york uh it was like it wasn't very long before uh, keith was let go and mm -hmm. then kind of went from there so yeah um so 
what was the vibe like in New York, you know? Because I know everybody talks about the East Coast, West Coast vibe and the speed yeah. of life and, and all that sure. stuff. You know, what was what was it like piercing in New York at that time? New York was amazing. We had, uh, it was, uh, the gauntlet was there. Uh, we had Venus, which was right down the street. Uh, Pleasurable piercing was right across the waterway in uh, New Jersey. I was electric, man. Uh, 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 the New York shop was right in Chelsea, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, one of the gay neighborhoods in San Francisco and uh, one of the leather hubs. And so most of my first clients were all these big leather guys getting geishas and mm-hmm. PAs and nipples and uh, it was all day long. Just jumping right and in the deep end. Jump right in. Uh, I had really never been a part of gay culture at all. Mm-hmm. And when I joined Gauntlet, I was one of like 40 employees and one of four straight people mm-hmm. and so for me and never being around it was just kind of getting used to uh this level of intimacy between the yeah. piercers that i just wasn't used to right i remember when i first walked into uh uh, the gauntlet in San Francisco and everybody kissed each other on the lips and I'd never seen that mm-hmm. and not that I had anything against it it was just like oh just hadn't been exposed yeah, to it yet. it's like that's what's going on right yeah um, I remember when I took this uh, the seminar uh, I took it with uh, Aldi um, and Dave Vidra and one of the nights after class we went to the Castro to get dinner at one of Michaela's favorite places mm-hmm. And I remember walking along and straightening Castro and looking in. I was like, oh, these bars, they're totally full, but there's there's no women in them. Right. <laughs> it, did, yeah. it didn't make yeah. any sense. <laughs> How's anybody going to get laid? <laughs> hey, I know. What's, what's going on here? <laughs> I remember uh, <laughs> Dave VJ hit me on the back of the head, and I was like, oh, oh, they're right, oh, oh, yeah, right. okay, yeah, totally. Uh, and so there was definitely like... Um, uh, a lot of culture shock, shock. Yeah, I'm sure. And of course, being in Manhattan at that time, uh, the Limelight, I don't know if you remember that club, was right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the big clubs in a big church. Mm-hmm. And, uh, DJs were all the rage and all this stuff. And so it was really electric. It was totally powerful and like one of like the greatest experiences in my life because it was like if I could make it in New York City mm-hmm. uh, and survive. You can make it anywhere. I can make it anywhere, really. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, okay, this is trial by fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I got hired, I sold everything I owned and was like, all right, let's see what I can do with just me, you know? Yeah. Uh, and moving to New York City, I didn't know anybody except for John. Um, uh, and I feel like it just kind of fell right in, uh, especially being... Uh, with the staff that we had that mm-hmm. was so inviting and like totally helped me kind of find my way around. Yeah. Um, find probably yourself and clarify yourself. Sure. Too. And reinvent and reinvent yourself. Yeah. You know, that's what I was there to do. And it's like, okay, I want to now make my mark, uh, here, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I was one of the fastest that made it to senior piercer, mm-hmm. uh, to training piercer, uh, Three months after I took the seminar, I was helping give the seminars. Uh, it's mainly because I just had emerged myself in all this material and yeah. like, memorized everything and like was focusing on these pierces. I, m- I remember like um, I was trying to qualify in helix piercings, and my the trainer that I had at the time was after Mark. It was this girl named Denise. And she just wouldn't give it to me. And I do all these piercings. I'm like, oh, but it came out so perfect. Mm-hmm. She's like, I don't know if you really have it just yet. So I'm not going to qualify you. And I was like, God damn it. So I learned how to do uh, helix piercings left-handed mm-hmm. just so I could qualify. Wow. Because I'm just like, okay, God damn it. Yeah. I'm going to do I've this. i got this. Right, yeah. yeah. And so that was what, you know, and from there, I, I kind of taught myself how to do all piercings on either side with either hand. Yeah, I do not have that skill. 
skill. Yeah, yeah. But I only did it because she wouldn't qualify me, and right. I was just like, I need that. But it's good to get that push and that challenge, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like that's so healthy. Yeah. And it's like, okay, what can I pull in myself? Where else can I pull from? Mm-hmm. It was great working with so many piercers because there's so many different ways of doing stuff. Right, yeah. That almost would have doubt every piercing that I did, I had at least three or four ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, training under Paul was really great because he really pushed that concept of well. He really loved having multiple ways of doing stuff, and he'd done the same from pulling from all these people that he trained with. Yeah. Uh, his main trainer was Elaine, mm-hmm. but then he still worked with a lot of uh, gym trained piercers as well, and they both had two different schools of thinking right. when it came to piercing. But it was great to have both of those because they really it wound up being advantageous at the end for you know piercing later on. It's like mm-hmm. oh. I don't have this tool I can do it this way yeah and just to have that in your tool belt makes such a big difference well the versatility in general you know that's that's one of those things where whenever I talk to younger piercers and they always ask well you know how how does one do this piercing correctly and it's like well you know I'm only gonna give you one perspective you should ask the same thing to ten other piercers you might get ten different answers you know versatility is a huge thing because I think why some younger piercers tend to struggle is because they try to, they find someone they look up to, they ask them how they do it, and they just try to copy just that. Sure. Rather than thinking, I want to learn all these different ways and see what fits me and makes it most comfortable for me to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that's great. I hope that uh, training piercers hear that as well. Mm-hmm. And so when they're training someone, they can be able to bring that uh, to whoever they're yeah. apprenticing, you know, and to give that uh, gift of wanting to experiment and see mm-hmm. other ways of doing it. And also tell him this is not all the ways. Yeah. There's still other things that other people are gonna come up with mm-hmm. and be like, whoa, wait a minute. That's one of the, the big things that. that jumps out for the Fakir intensives is it's not just one person teaching, like do it this way. It's yeah. like a, a, a palette of people, you know, and they're like, okay, I, you're gonna see it my way, now you're gonna see it this person's way and this person's way, and we're gonna talk about why it works and what might not work. I love how they embrace that. Yeah. Uh, that, if anything, would have been uh, one of the faults of the gauntlet seminars is it was a little bit more focused one-sided. On, on one-sided. Though you did have different piercers doing it. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you had uh, only six different piercers kind of teaching. Yeah, uh, but it was kind of the way. gauntlet brand, the gauntlet curriculum. Exactly. Uh, and I think it's a great way to start. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, there's nothing wrong with you know piercing earlobes with forceps. I still use that today. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't ever have to move past that. But it's great to learn freehand and all the other stuff, sure. which they weren't really pushing as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, may, you know, it makes sense that was like the beginnings of kind of learning how to do that. And I think with Fakir, because uh, their school, because they've had, uh, they've been doing it for so long and being able to experiment with that, they kind of learn these, all these different ways to teach people. Yeah. And I think that's super healthy. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. So, um, what were some of the the big jumps and decisions uh, from from going from New York to San Francisco? Uh, I actually traveled around a bunch. Um, at the end of my New York stint, uh, I had a girlfriend uh, who died in a fire, mm-hmm. um, and not ever having that ever happen to me was kind of the the end point for me being in New York. Uh, I'd come to a spot where. Uh, the company was kind of on this downward spiral. Mm-hmm. They had uh, uh, Russell had bought the company, so Jim no longer owned it. Yep. Uh, they were starting to weed out people. Uh, they all wanted us to sign um, contracts to not pierce in whatever town. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a lot of people get fired and law we were losing, and so like it was kind of a whirlwind at the end. Uh, and I wanted to move into 
uh, Los Angeles because they had lost their entire staff mm-hmm. because of the Russell thing. And so I moved there, uh, and then I started traveling around. I worked for Gus at Paragon. Mm-hmm. I worked for Duncan at Polymorph. Uh, and then I met uh, Grant from Cold Steel mm-hmm. uh, through... I met him at APP actually. Uh, it would have been the '98 one at the Hard Rock. Cool. Uh, and he was like, "Oh, well, I need people," and I'd never been to London. I was like, "All right." Uh, and so there was kind of a, a bit of a circle that happened because at the same time, him and Paul were starting to talk about opening the shops in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my whole thing was I was gonna go to San Francisco first and then wind up in London okay. where I was going to move to. I was going to okay. try to get papers. I didn't want to work so you were in the States anymore. try to launch Cold Steel America and then then transplant <laughs> to London. Yeah, I okay. wanted to, I really wanted to be in Europe at that time. Yeah. Uh, and I was just going to go help Paul and then uh, whatever uh, uh, San Francisco was having a harder time so mm-hmm. they needed a bigger commitment out of me. And so in the beginning I was only supposed to be there six months. Okay. Uh, and then that six months turned into 20 years. years next year yeah, yeah. it's kind of <laughs> wow. happened yeah it was amazing yeah uh but it was great being able to travel that was really uh a great experience to see different shops it was like one of the first traveling piercers i guess yeah because <laughs> i don't know if that happened as much then uh but it was great because we were getting exposed to like what was going on in australia what was going on in europe and like yeah. how different each place was kind of pulling from it uh uh, in Australia, um, one of the guys at uh, Polymorph was a big cannula guy, mm-hmm. and that was we didn't even have any experience with it. And right. it was amazing because, like, for some stuff, like, it was awesome for yeah. like yeah. Uh, industrials and amplings and stuff like that. The yep. needles were so much sharper mm-hmm. than we'd been working with, and yeah, it was amazing to kind of to get that experience there. Cool. You should come over to UK APP. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'd love to see what it's go, what's going on there now. Yeah, because uh, I got to see it then, but you know, such a small section of twenty something years ago. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, what are some of the the pivot points that you've seen? You know, in in twenty plus years in the industry, like you know, I, I'm sure the the creation of the APP was a big one. You know, and maybe different generations of the board and, and how the APP was formed by them and things like that. What are, what are some of the things that stand out to a, a career that has that wide of a scope? Um, the jewelry companies, mm-hmm. the new drum, jewelry companies coming out and kind of taking what Gauntlet did and moving forward, like watching an Adam metal come up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a huge fan of good art uh, and everything that they were doing. I yeah. was pretty good friends with Josh, uh, which was awesome. Steel Skin. And Steel all Skin, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the statum when that of course when that when Brian that must have been rent, a big game changer that was so amazing uh, to be able to like transfer and to, oh just sterilize it right here mm-hmm. um, one of the first things uh, going back a second when I was at Gauntlet beyond uh, autoclave and rubber bands I was trying to bring in uh, autoclave jewelry mm-hmm. and at that time we were still cold cold soaking was still like pretty much the standard yeah uh, but Elaine at her shop had been sterilizing when she first opened Mm -hmm. sterilized all of her jewelry and that no one else had done that and so that was something that i tried to bring to to the gauntlet while i was there yeah um such a big stock it was so hard to do i'm sure um so that 
I unfortunately was out of it for a long time because with Paul doing all of his stuff for APP, I was mm-hmm. stuck at the shop for years. Right. And so I got to see some of this stuff kind of happen from the sidelines. Mm-hmm. But there was years where I really didn't hang out with Pierce's at all. Right. And it's not until like the last like five years or so I really got to get back into it. That's and like so weird too. <laughs> just 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 thinking about that concept, you know, someone with your experience level and how personable you are, but you you. You didn't really get to get out to see the wider community as much. Sure, and, and at you know at the point I was like, okay, well I've come to this pinnacle of like mm-hmm. what I what I plan Cold Steel to be in the way that I get to set up all the systems and all that stuff. Uh, the last like you know five ten years having Becky in the shop has been pivotal on moving forward. Uh, sure, yeah. uh, definitely not been the easiest thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's still been a lot of butting of heads and like, oh, do we really have to do this or do that and. Uh, disagreeing on things like mm-hmm. i still wear a face mask yep. you know i wear a face mask. sure yeah yeah uh, but you know some people don't and right. that's you know everybody has to, everybody kind of picks and chooses how far they move forward with all that mm-hmm. stuff it's like do you just work strictly out of a statum and don't ever touch a tool and other stuff or do you use some pre-packs or you yeah. know however whatever well, I point i think you that's where that you. mentality of versatility comes into it sure you know, being able to make decisions as to what's most appropriate for you, how you define minimum standards and all that different stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's great to kind of, uh, to get back into it again after so many years and watch the progress that's happened uh, and make those changes within, in my own uh, practice. And even when sometimes I'm like, oh, this is so stupid, (laughs) (laughs) you know, Uh, but to kind of be like, okay, but this is, this is what it takes to to move forward and Mm -hmm. continue on. Uh, and it is something that I'm slowly starting to embrace, you know, yeah. even when I don't agree with it sometimes. It's right, like, okay, right. well, I'll do this, you know, because this is where it's going. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's been super healthy, and I love doing stuff like this and meeting people. And, yeah. Uh, it's just been really great. So how do you how do you keep your how do you keep your energy and your motivation up? You know, um, that long. I mean, how do you fight burnout or? You know, it's so much. Uh, uh, this last year, I got to do a talk uh, at APP about mm-hmm. burnout. Yeah. Uh, and the, the funny story that I started off with was uh, it was Becky who suggested it. She's like, oh, you should do something for the APP. And I was like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. You know, I'd love to kind of uh, to contribute. And she's like, you should do a talk. And I'm like, awesome. I'm like, what should I talk about? And she's like, you should do burnout. Yeah. And I was like, oh. And I kind of hung my head. I'm like, okay. And in my head, it was her telling me I was burned out. Okay. And I should look at ways of curing my burnout. Right. And so literally for the first six months, I was like, okay, what can I do to help prevent my burnout? You know, because uh, it's definitely something I've dealt with for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've come across it a couple of times. I've had a couple of big points where I'm like, I'm done. I've walked away from piercing, whatever. Um, and for me, it's about keeping that versatility in my life uh, and to make sure whatever I'm doing is bringing me joy. Uh, I play music. I have a number of bands that I play with in San Francisco. uh, And so it's always, always have something to do. Uh, when I don't have something to do at the yeah. end of the day. And uh, probably a creative and passionate outlet, too. Physical, yeah. all that stuff. Uh, the last couple of years, I, I took up yoga, mm-hmm. uh, which has been uh, something I really ha- you have to do. As you get older, your body doesn't work as well. Mm-hmm. And if your body doesn't work as well, you don't work as well. Yeah. You know, if you have, you know, a sore pack or something like that, you can't focus enough. And it also, I feel like it kind of sucks the joy out of whatever you're doing. Right. And so it's like, uh, taking time for self-care, um, reading uh, is a really big one uh, to keep my brain kind of stimulated. Mm-hmm. I kind of have to have that. 
And so to me, it's about keeping all those different aspects going in my life. Uh, I love traveling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, that I got from Paul, you know, watching him travel so much. I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, I want to do that too, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's great to get a, a different perspectives. Um, I'm super excited. I'm gonna go to China this year. Cool. Uh, and visit some piercing shops while I'm there, right. which I think is gonna be fucking that must amazing. Be amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a couple of guys, Dylan and Pat, just got back yeah. from yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm excited to see that as well. And so it's just like kind of incorporating all those things uh, into your life and making sure you have something full. Mm-hmm. Um, there came a point. Uh, when my burnout was probably most right at the end of my time with Gauntlet and I had to sit down and ask myself what do I what do I enjoy doing like when am I when I'm not piercing what do I enjoy doing and I kind of had to search out those things and like pull them in my life because at that time it was still all piercing yeah I feel like there was a breaking point where it's like okay maybe you're done with this right now think about it just a little bit less Mm -hmm. and like today it's about uh with people who aren't burned out uh, even though my entire shop works for APP mm-hmm. uh, and definitely gets crazy <laughs> during conference yeah. time because yeah. everybody is distracted Just with something else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that could be hard because they definitely mm-hmm. had to burn out uh, but it's still really great to have like people who are who love the industry so much yeah. like Danny and Becky and like I would imagine it would be hard to work around Danny and Becky with those infectious smiles and not <laughs> let some of it in you know sure, it sure. makes you want to smile more yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. absolutely and knowing that the same thing that they're adding to the community they're making it better yeah. and that that's what I'm supporting every day mm-hmm. so I feel like that those kind of things like keeping those together definitely keep the burnout levels down though it's still feeling yeah. for sure before I came to camp I was kind of done for me because <laughs> <laughs> we were still recovering from conference where everybody was doing everything yeah. and then when they came back Paul's still working on uh, his stuff mm-hmm. and uh, another one of our counter people is now working for him um, at his house away from the shop so yeah. it's like there's always something kind of going on with those guys. Well, just in my in my shorter experience with the APP, uh, you know, it, it felt like there was much more of an off season for for APP work, you know. Mm-hmm. And now it's there is no off season, you know. Uh, There's always so much to do. Yeah, even like right when you get back from conference, it's immediately into planning for the next conference. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so there's really not much of a a downtime uh, if you want to get involved in in helping the organization of, of the industry sure yeah after yeah. teaching classes this year and doing app talk i know that like i'm just i can't do it with everybody else doing it mm-hmm. it was just insanity yeah because i couldn't focus on my own stuff because like you know people not you know work as many days and stuff like that or just kind of being short tempered mm-hmm. just always being distracted doing something else well because if you don't if you don't take time to, to live your life and re-energize yourself, you just get to a breaking point, you know? Sure. We've both seen people in the industry where, you know, they're workhorses and they're workhorses up until the day that they just can't be anymore. Oh, I saw so much of that with the gauntlet. Yeah. The people that burned out there was really, 
really ugly mm-hmm. this stuff in the beginning uh, and unfortunately um, there's a guy that's really close to the lane named Dan Kafka and I unfortunately got to see some of what that looked like mm-hmm. after he had already burned out and it was just like I, I don't want that joyless yeah, yeah completely joyless I watched uh, all the stuff that happened at Nomad mm-hmm. uh, where they had all their quick turnovers with Blake and Christian and Scott and all those guys yep. they would just burn out and just be like fuck this I'm moving to India mm. you know <laughs> right. you know I didn't want to be like that you know yeah. um, I was really fortunate to um, uh, be friends with Vaughn mm-hmm. from Body Man- Manipulations uh, I feel like out of anybody else maybe besides Brian uh, he just was always super calm mm-hmm. and sweet no matter how many times he had to repeat something he was like a great person to look up to when I started to get uh, more burned out it's like oh what are you what are you doing to mm-hmm. kind of because I want to be like that yeah. you know and so it was great to have people like that in my community kind of pull from say like, oh, okay I want to move towards this and not towards what these guys are doing mm-hmm. so I feel very lucky to be in all the spots that, it, that I've been for sure yeah well when I when I see something like that when I when I hear someone's story about all these different things that just seem to align and all this, you just get reminded that sometimes you're you're meant to be part of something, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, and when that when that thing can fulfill you, you know, and you can find yourself through that, you know, and that's what helped me find myself is just sticking needles through people's wieners, you know. And <laughs> it's weird. It's cool though. I like it. Yeah. No. I, I, from day one, it, it was always so natural. Yeah. You know, even I I never touched someone else's dick before. <laughs> like you know, Pierce is like, oh. Yeah, this this feels right. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's yeah. cool. Um, one of my uh, one of my favorite stories is when I was in New York. I'm still kind of getting used to like the S and M and the the scene that they had going on and all the leather guys and all this stuff. We would um, in the mid nineties there was a lot of mistress slave type mm-hmm. relationships going on and. So on a somewhat regular basis, we would get people coming in, would hand us a note and go, okay, hi, I'm so-and-so mistress, this is my slave, uh, they're agreeing to all this, you know, uh, and I had this guy come in, you know, uh, hat, glasses, yep. trench coat and stuff like that, hand us a letter and from his mistress, and he's like, oh, slave has been bad today and is going to get a geesh piercing, you know, and you go, are you into this? And, you know, he, he nods, he's like, all right, cool, you know, yeah. always consensual. Uh, and so the last, you know, I take him in the room and the New York rooms were really big. Uh, and so it was like, you know, like five or six steps in between the gyno table and the, the table we were working off of. And the last thing I saw was hat glasses, trench coat, mm-hmm. shoes, whatever. And then when you turn back so around, I, what was it? So when I turn back around, uh, it's uh, high heels, uh, stockings, garter belt, panties, bra, and he has one of those cock gags mm-hmm. that he's putting into his mouth. And it was just like... <laughs> six Ready for months, business. Six months ago, I was living in Louisiana. It's just not <laughs> a fucking reality. And all of a sudden... And so, like, it wasn't... I couldn't handle it. It was just like, oh, okay, right. so that's what this right. is. Okay, okay, yeah. This so, is part of my life th- now. This is part of my life. Yeah. And so it became such a daily thing. It's like, it's such an interesting way to view mm-hmm. people, humans, right. as, you know, as a whole. Yeah. And I feel like as we go along, we're like... We don't see people the same way. No, people, you, know. you get to see who the person really is. Totally, they, they they let down their barriers, and you know whether it's physical or or some sort of other intimacy level, 
um, you really get to learn who people are. Oh, absolutely. And it's so fantastic just to see that humanity. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, yeah, I don't know what I'm expecting. You know, we'd have like 60-year-old guys come in and they have 30 genital piercings. And I'm like, you're someone's grandpa. No one knows that. You right. know what I'm saying? No right. one knows this. Yeah. Uh, and so it was so magical to be to see kind of behind the curtain with people and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I think that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed uh, as being a piercer, right. you know, just right. in general. So Yeah. I, I think some people might look at it as like, well, you're getting desensitized to certain things, but you're not. You're really just realizing that it's it's all there. It's all in front of you. You just don't see it. And you get to see it now. Absolutely. It's embracing humanity yeah. in all respects and seeing all facets that make us such beautiful entities mm-hmm. being human. You know, it's like that's totally part of it. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to kind of see the industry kind of move away from that a little bit. It does seem so, you know, to compare it to something in the industry, is, you know, sterility is, is such an important thing. And it's this driving force of upping minimum standards and, you know, sterile gloves now and statums and all these other things. And I think some people are over sterilizing the ancillary things connected to body piercing, you know, the motivations as to why people want that piercing. You know, and, and like, yes, uh, gold is nice and gems are nice, but why does the person want the piercing to wear the jewelry in? You yeah, know, totally. all those different motivations. Yeah. So don't definitely don't lose that. Don't lose the person when you're just staring at the piercing. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely seen that shift happen where mm-hmm. it was like, uh, I'm just in general piercing. It was like going from almost all genital piercings and maybe you know nostril here and there right to being like i almost exclusively do earlobes now mm-hmm. I, that's that's absolutely a majority of things i do you know and helix piercings and like septums and stuff mm-hmm. like that which weren't necessarily that big a, you know right that's what i was doing and so it's neat to kind of watch all that stuff move and shift but yeah less genital stuff and it's that same trend where um you know sometimes you'll see memes and jokes online where it's like this was a tattooer in the 1960s and it's the big <laughs> eagle chest piece and this and that. It's like, and then this is the tattoo apprentice in the 2000s and it's just, you got your hands, you got your neck, that's it. So now it's so much about visibility and fashion um, that I, I don't I don't want people to lose that point of inspiration. You know, whatever it was that drove people to saying, you know, I'm going to be all business, but when I, when I take it off, you're going to see that I've got 50 piercings in my genitals. Sure. Um, where is that motivation going to be for the next generation of people that want to get piercings? You know, sure. if they're only seeing blinged out nostrils and the fanciest doff piercings and this and that, like, are they going to lose the motivation to experiment with their sexuality and, and piercings that can enhance that and all these things that are personal and for them because they think that body piercing is all just about fashion? Sure, sure. Yeah. That's an interesting thing. I always wondered, like, is that was that fashion aspect also a part of like um, when people were getting piercing tattoo two hundred years ago? Mm-hmm. You know, it just looks differently now. I'm sure it's because part of, of body so- and expression. Yeah, but, social media yeah. and how that's kind of changed the way we see right uh, and how those trends move and mm-hmm. stuff. You know. Yeah, like uh, keep piercing weird. At, at least oh, a little bit. At least yeah. a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we definitely not as rude. And San Francisco's always been like an interesting kind of place because we've never embraced the weird. We've never embraced the the heavy mods mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, even at the pinnacle of like body modification uh, coming into San Francisco, we never like really uh, latched on to the John Cobbs or the Steve Haywards mm-hmm. or the implants or like really big lobes. 
facial tattoos have mm. never really been a thing. Where, the BME generation. Yeah, definitely. would uh, never happened there, but like when I lived in Phoenix, it was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everybody had two-inch ears and horns, and granted, Steve was there as well. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like these other towns where they maybe they had more conservative base, mm-hmm. uh, and rubber band got pulled a little bit further back, where San Francisco was always kind of like... Uh, embracing that it's mm-hmm. like oh you have your little pierce oh, okay we don't care you know um i feel like there's just always been a different level there because yeah. even when like you know people like luna cobra and stuff like that come in they work you know, you know a couple of days and yeah they, you know they don't really have like a big draw and a lot of times those guys are coming from out of town mm-hmm. anyway mm-hmm. to get that work done but in san francisco it's just never flown yeah it's always been interesting to see that so in san francisco it's like it's always been a more conservative mm-hmm. Of all the branches of it, yeah, want to kind of spread out. So hmm. interesting to see that as well. Super interesting. I, you know, I, I have moments sometimes where I think, well, what's what's piercing going to be like in ten years, in twenty years? Sure. You know, is it going to come back around again, where it's going to get pushed more into stuff that's covered by your clothes? You know, what what's the jewelry going to be like? What are the piercers going to be like? The techniques going to be like? It's sure. Yeah. And it's in a lot of that. Uh, based off of like just a general mindset and the way society looks at stuff mm-hmm. in the 90s it's just none of that stuff was acceptable you yeah. couldn't get a job you couldn't do anything mm-hmm. nowadays I have 14 year olds with hand tattoos 20 years ago tattoo artists didn't have hand tattoos yeah. you know it's, yeah. it's there's a level of, of acceptance that now happened where I feel like kind of anything goes mm-hmm. you know you have celebrities and stuff with, with face tattoos right you know right that didn't happen 20 years yeah. ago and yet. nobody <laughs> thinks that they're like a russian gangster or a drug dealer sure yeah. no absolutely i see some of the tattoos on people and like and granted like the the imagery has changed mm-hmm. but i'm just like 20 years ago you know yeah which is what's very interesting to kind of watch mm-hmm. uh and after 20 years of kind of seeing it like when we first started i knew everybody with sleeves i knew everybody with face tattoos yeah. you know what i'm saying like mm-hmm. if we went to a town i saw someone I'm like oh yeah you got that done but blah blah blah, blah. Mm-hmm. and now it's definitely not like that right you know how right. like widespread that it's uh yeah. embrace so more mass appeal which is beautiful. I think yeah. it's fantastic, you know. Yeah. And it's what we wanted, right? You know. Yeah, we wanted it. We wanted to just be like everybody else, and now everybody else is just like us. <laughs> uh, I remember when uh, they started cutting off digits. Mm. Like the hobo kids were starting to do that, and we were like, "Oh my God, is that what piercing's gonna look like?" You know, sitting at the gauntlet. Yeah. You know, something years ago, we were like. John had done the youthful piercing and a couple of other things. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, what the hell is this going to look like in 20 years? So, uh, <laughs> and not not to say it in a negative, but I can't imagine the hubris to think I'm going to pierce a uvula. You know, I would was, be sweating bullets. Yeah, like I don't, and I know he like understood what he was doing. And John Cobb, hyper intelligent, yeah. dude. Yeah, uh, he just, I feel like. Sometimes, uh, with some of these guys, it's such, and that could be wrong, an ego thing, where it's like, I want to see, I need to do something to grab everyone's mm-hmm. attention, and it's almost doing the thing that's secondary to what they were trying to achieve. Yeah. You know? I think part of it, too, is just proving it to yourself of like, I know I could do that. Sure, sure. Yeah. And who, I mean, you know, 27 years ago when he did that, it's like, 
that was such a massive thing to do yeah. you know uh the tools were not what we have today the needles mm-hmm. were not what we had today the jewelry was not what we had today and so there was still a lot of uphill things even before you started doing right, it you right. know uh i've watched him do one or attempted to do one mm-hmm. the guy he never wound up getting it but um but i knew the the two people that got or the people who got the first or the second and the third one mm-hmm. who got it. it was some friends of his that wound up getting the piercing yeah uh yeah such a really gotta trust your friend to be like put a needle in the back yeah. of your throat yeah I, I watched it happen i was just like one little <gasps> and yeah yeah what are you gonna do right you now so um yeah, such magical times. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they all took it out though. Oh because, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, because what people didn't realize is that when you slept, it would go to the back of your throat okay. <laughs> and you'd cough, and yeah. so that would happen all night long. Yeah. yeah. So most of those guys took it out right away. Right. But they probably got a cool picture first. <laughs> oh, they got a great picture. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, and one of the guys, uh, Mark Brown, who I don't know if you know that name. I don't know if I do. Um. Mark was really good friends uh, with John. Mm. Uh, he was uh, a piercer as well. Uh, he had a shop that he opened up. Uh, he worked on uh, St. John or St. Mark Street for a while and then opened up a shop called Cicada, mm-hmm. uh, which was only there a couple of years. Uh, but he was like a sideshow guy, like face tattoos and yeah. all that stuff, and uh, ate glass and whatever like that. I think he's in San Diego now. He writes BMX bikes or whatever. Uh, but he was one of the guys, one of the first guys to yeah. get it. So. Guts. Takes guts. Oh, yeah. That guy was just crazy. Such good stories with those kids. So to, to kind of wind it down, is mm-hmm. there any advice that you would want to put out there for someone who, you know, maybe they want to pursue the body piercer lifestyle or that maybe they are a piercer and they're just not connected to the, the wide world of piercing yet? Is there any advice you'd give? Sure, sure. Um, you know, it really being a part of community, I feel like that that really is the key um, that keeps things moving, of not being so separate, like reach out to people, um, uh, make those contacts, make those conversations. Uh, as much as I love conference, like it's so hard to make like a, a, a real connection with these yeah, people. Totally. And like, and I, I kind of missed that when, uh, when conference was uh, less hectic, we had less classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was great because you got to spend more time like you do uh, at camp. Yeah. And I feel like the, that's really the, for me the key. And, and when I was doing my lecture, my talk on burnout, um, everything that I found all came to connection, communication, uh, making uh, those bonds with people mm-hmm. uh, is really what has kept me uh, so in love with this community, uh, regardless of whatever my place in it may be, whether yeah. it's I'm just a guy who stays back and does ear piercings all day while all, you know, Paul travels and Becky teaches, you know, it, that to me, that's still a connection mm-hmm. and that's, for me that's still my part in helping with that you know um and i feel like that that's that's the key to to happiness and whatever you may do you know including uh piercing yeah it's really good advice yeah you want to go watch some kickball yeah 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 cool thank you thanks for oh uh, just really quick for the the show um any sort of social media or anything you want people to know for you oh uh uh code steel uh america dot com is the website uh i'm on instagram uh drum and drummer uh drm underscore drmmr okay i uh, got yeah, that and that's really all i have with that stuff though all right thanks, thanks for man. talking to me yeah yeah for sure man
All right. Thanks, Mick. I appreciate you talking to me and I definitely appreciate you sharing some of that perspective and uh, just kind of hearing your career arc. You know, you were literally living the dream of someone like me, someone who wanted to get into the industry in like the the mid to late 90s kind of thing. And, um, you know, especially hearing the perspective of what it was like being one of those gauntlet piercers. You know, I think that's kind of legendary status at this point. You know, it, it's something that people will never be able to recreate these days. They'll They'll never be able to get uh, you know, that work experience of, you know, being at the gauntlet and next to John Cobb and learning from Paul King, you know, and, and, and stuff like that, you know, it's, it's a, a, a generation that really needs to be documented. You know, I know a lot of the, the documentation is still kind of catching up with the, the eighties and, and early nineties, but, you know, um, I think the people who are the historians now are going to be the, be the people who historians 10 years from now are talking about as, as the greats in the industry. So I just really appreciate you, uh, taking some time to, to talk to me, Mick. Uh, again, I apologize for all that wind noise in the background, but uh, I do not know what I'm doing, and I just like to remind people of that every now and then. Uh, and speaking of which, the APP Board of Directors, uh, uh, I would love your vote. Uh, again, um, the, the election's coming up uh, really quickly around mid-November, so you know you have a decision to make if you're an APP member. You know, talk to the people that are running, ask them questions, you know, read what they're posting online. You know, some of them have platforms and agendas, uh, you know, give them give them that uh, that ear and, and see who shares your values as a body and vote for them. You know, whether it's me or someone else, I'm going to I'm going to support your decision as long as you put some thought into it. But uh, I would certainly like to be one of those people you would support. And, uh, you know, if you, again, have any questions for me, feel free to, to reach out and ask them and I'll get that on the show. Um, for now, I am going to uh, immediately start putting together next week's episode because I'm going to be out of town then. I'll be in Canada, so I want to have an episode uh, edited and ready for you and online. So uh, I have to stop work on this and get to work on that. So thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. For more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcast, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC. All rights reserved.